listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where we're here with our Zoom member participants but also going out on YouTube Live and on a range of other streaming platforms, iTunes and so on. And we're looking forward to a wonderful conversation today. Uh, Every week we have amazing solutionaries, people who've been, uh, not people that are just focusing on all the incredible problems of the world. And sure, there are plenty and many podcasts where you can hear about deeper and deeper uh, problems that are just, uh, you know, almost almost drive us crazy because it's just too much. But what we're focusing on is the solutionaries, the people who are coming up with how to solve the problems we're facing. And today I have the special opportunity to welcome an old friend who's been a solutionary from way back, uh, working on helping to solve the world's problems, uh, Bud Wilson. And uh, Bud Wilson is a uh, uh, certainly a change agent, uh, very active. He founded Echo Action for Rotary International Preserving the Planet campaign. He's uh, bringing together business leaders and others and taking people out on wilderness journeys and doing a range of things to help us connect with Mother Earth and with our, with, with our roots and also to take us into a more, uh, a, a more generative future, a future regenerative future where we can all thrive and, and uh, enjoy the fruits of this beautiful planet. Uh, so welcome, Bud. Welcome to our People Powered Planet podcast. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Arthur. It's an honor and a privilege, and uh, we'll see if we can come up with a few ideas that might be helpful, beneficial, supportive. And as I was saying as we were getting ready for this, I never know where a conversation with Arthur Canagus is going to lead. <laughs> well, good. Well, we'll all discover that together here because I don't know either. So, <laughs> so well, you know, I think one of the things that amazed me uh, when I first connected with Windstar, when you were putting on the Choices for the Future conferences with John Denver, and this goes way back to the, to the 70s when you were working on this, and you actually had one of the master solutionaries, uh, Buckminster Fuller, working with you. And now many of you know Buckminster Fuller's uh, geodesic spheres, but he was an incredible thinker who, uh, uh, who, who figured out uh, incredible ways to solve problems that others hadn't thought of before, as is the geodesic sphere, which has this great uh, tensile strength in a, in a simplicity of, of, of fewer, fewer struts than, than other building materials and so on. But that whole geodesic sphere is also kind of the model for Gary's idea of the people-powered planet, where as it rotates, everybody is on top of the world because we're all at the pinnacle of the hub of our role in making a, a better world. Um, now, tell us about tell us about that time. I mean, that must have been pretty exciting to personally meet Buckminster Fuller and to be working with him. Uh, what what was, were the problems you were solving and how was he helping you do that? Well, sir, first of all, I don't want to exaggerate how closely we were able to work. He was on our advisory board uh, during the late 70s. I actually first met him when I was running the conferences and seminars in Snowmass Resort. And he came to give a presentation to the National Academy of Sciences. So that's where I actually first met him. But when you talk about the geodesic dome, um, and you know, he's also a post winner of, an, of a uh, Nobel Prize for physics, of all things, 
but he was also a very astute observer of nature and the planet. And, and he liked to always advocate doing more with less. And actually that's why the geodesic dome was such a breakthrough architecturally because it required the least amount of material to span the greatest space and the greatest distance. Um, and uh, he had a, his book would, that sort of put him on the map to a great extent was The Critical Path. And so uh, I like the fact that he got kicked out of Harvard three times for not applying himself. We <laughs> uh, get kicked out of what? Harvard University. Of Harvard he, University, three yeah. times for not applying himself. So he yeah. was applying himself to the world, not the, not the well, <laughs> Exactly. And that's another one of the distinctions that he brought forward, which was he was in very great despair um, when one of his, his children died prematurely and early. And he literally, the story goes that he wandered out into Lake Michigan because he was, uh, I think, living in Chicago at the time with the intention to end his life. And that was it. He was in such deep despair and resignation about everything, including his own personal loss. And at one very bright moment and of his insight, he realized that he did not belong to himself and therefore had no right to end his life. And what he really believed in was that he belonged to the universe and anything and everything that he created was a gift to simply give away to humanity. So I think those principles are what attracted John Denver's interest in Bucky's work. And, and that's why um, one of the early songs that John Denver wrote was um, what one man can do. And it was truly a, a, an honoring and a tribute to the influence that Bucky Fuller had on John Denver's uh, attitudes and beliefs and insights. Wow, I'd love to hear that song. Uh, we can look, anyone can just go ahead and look that up. Uh, and uh, you can uh, certainly uh, uh, hear that inspiring song about Bucky Fuller. And I understand he made another song about uh, Bucky too. Yeah, because one of the other things that Bucky did that was inspiring to us at Windstar, and, and I guess this is a, in a way we were working with his ideas for the world game. And um, he put together a very um, convincing illustration of the challenges that we were facing as, as uh, a species on this planet. All the uh, data about production of energy and consumption of energy, production of food and the uh, consumption of food. And so, but it was a, a design because he was a mathematician as well. It was designed in a way that would appeal to people that had a very easy access to abstract concepts and abstract thoughts. But mostly it only really resonated most deeply with engineers and mathematicians. So when we got a hold of it, we, we were aware that we needed to reach people's emotional bodies and their hearts. And so we put together a, a project called The State of Our Planet, and we used his Dymaxion world map. He was just constantly inventing things because he was frustrated that we were still using the Mercator projections from the 15th century in all of our classrooms for the maps. And of course, 
in the United States, North America was right in the center of the map and, and the rest of the world was cut off on both sides, right? So right. he created and it made it, it made the things near the North Pole like Greenland oh, look huge nine, when really oh, they yeah. weren't. Nine hundred percent distortion. So he basically decided to unpeel the Earth and made this dimaxi. It's called the Dimaxian map, and we made one of those that filled half of a basketball court, and we brought out a hundred people. Each one represented one percent of the world's population, and we distributed them all around the map. And uh, then we we had calibrated light lighting to show where the world was consuming the most energy. So we had bright spotlights on North America and Japan and most of Europe and the rest of the world was in the dark. And we brought out for food production and consumption, we brought out little French baguettes of bread and we handed a baguette out. Um, and in, the Nor in North America, each person in, in we were representing at that time 5% of the world's population. So we had five people standing in, in the United States and uh, there were maybe 10 or 12 people in China and Southeast Asia and we would hand out these baguettes and every person in North America had about two and a half baguettes and there was about a quarter of a baguette for every three or four people in Africa and in, in China and that in those areas to illustrate uh, somatically, and I mean, and emotionally, the the data was used from the United Nations and, and various agencies that would collect that sort of information. And we took the, the data, the numbers, and made them viscerally real for people. Hmm. So right, I remember that. I remember, and and how much more powerful it was to actually feel and experience that kind of. Uh, uh, separation and division and see it right in the same room. It, it brought these abstract concepts down. So as you said, you felt them at that emotional level. That's right. And I know, you know, I invited you. The reason that you and I met 31 years ago was that I was charged with the uh, challenge of creating a documentary of our very first Choices for the Future Symposium so that we could get it out in multimedia to people that didn't have the ability to come to Aspen, Colorado in June for a weekend to be with these luminaries and all these various presenters. And so I knew that you had produced War Without Winners and with what uh, uh, Paul Newman as the narrator and you had produced The Weapons Bazaar, which was a phenomenally powerful expose of, of the convention that all the three-star and four-star generals go to to place their purchase orders for the military industrial complex. And I knew you had a reputation of creating really powerful video movies and films. And so I called in, I asked for you to show up and you did. Uh, and that was terrific with Molly. And so um, and then we, you may recall, we brought in Vivian Verdon Rowe, who had produced an Academy Award winning film called Women for America for the World. And you were all just so generous with your experience and your knowledge, and it helped me tremendously in producing that, uh, that documentary. Well, so, but, but that was to, a great time. I remember uh, uh, we also had one of the, the big luminaries of film. 
uh, one of the uh, one of the most well-known people. Do you want to tell us about that? Well, about... <laughs> who are you thinking of, Ted Turner? Or... Ted Turner, yeah. yeah. Well, of course, he had many, but Ted Turner was sort of like the, he was like a, uh, uh, he had, uh, well, whole networks and uh, had a, a, a huge uh, impact in that area. Tell us about Ted Turner coming. Well, sure. He, <laughs> uh, he was so energetic. Um, he barely would could he couldn't even keep himself in his body because <laughs> <laughs> i'll never forget he was going back and forth on the stage when he was giving his presentation and i the one quote that came out of that that i recall most powerfully was he said you know these uh these conservatives they're they're always complaining about the damn liberals and and uh he calls us do-gooders and he's he's going back and forth behind the lectern he says and and I just want to know what the heck is wrong with doing good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. So, which uh, which leads me actually to one more thing that I I was wondering what I would share today about um, <laughs> with you and how it might be helpful for people. Um, and there are two things that are coming up. One is liberal and conservative. Wouldn't it be a beautiful world if we could just drop both of those terms out of our vocabulary? Because they uh, elicit so much uh, both anxiety, frustration, fear, anger, you name it. it. They're so emotionally charged. And the other one is Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. But um, when we talk about what inspires us to be engaged in, in solutions and uh, and why do we care and, and, and what's wrong with doing good and you know, all those kinds of concepts. I came across a, a quote from one of my professors um, in college, my, my uh, freshman year actually, and he had just written a book called The New Industrial State. John Kenneth Galbraith, some of you might know of him. He was a very famous economist. And, um, and then I, I bumped into this quote in Paul Hawkins' Blessed Unrest in the chapter called, We Interrupt This Empire. Wow. <laughs> and, and if you don't mind, I'll, I didn't memorize it. I should have memorized it. No, but, that's fine. Go right ahead. <laughs> but so so we'll, this will be the last time we'll talk about conservatives and, uh, and liberals. <laughs> and here's the quote. The modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy. That is the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness, wow. which was really powerful. And I'm guessing uh, that that must have been written or uh, stated right around 1970, 1969, 1970, 71, right in that era when the first Earth Day was launched in 1970. So um, anyway. Well, I think that's a, that's a powerful thing. And that's probably one of the things you're uh, also doing as you take people on these nature walks. They cross all political boundaries and, uh, and, and bring people together uh, on the vital issues of connecting with our planet Earth rather than being separated by political ideologies. Well, absolutely. What seems to be missing is the the realization and the recognition that we are all one, 
And uh, the, the first allegiance that we ought to have is to uh, the essence of all that is, the life force energy. And the life force energy is what supports every, every living entity on this planet. And of course, then we go to another level of suggesting that, well, the planet isn't a mechanistic machine, it's a living, breathing organism, the whole Gaia concept and, and Gaia principle. So um, going into nature, if you asked 100 people in their stressed out, contracted, irrit irritable mood, how they cut through that, they'll say, oh, well, I, I really uh, recognize that I can calm myself by taking a walk in nature. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll be courageous enough to follow uh, uh, Robert Frost and Robert Frost's um, uh, two roads in the yellow wood diverge, right? And he right. took the path less traveled by. But I think one of the more, um, if we're going to go into that, uh, our life's purpose being supported by and encouraged by our connection with the natural world and our love of nature and beauty. And um, there's a, another uh, part of Robert Frost's uh, pantheon <laughs> of uh, guidance is two trumps in, or no, two tramps in mud time. And, <laughs> and it, it says, my object in living is to unite my vocation with my avocation as my two eyes in one make sight. Only where love and need are one and work is play for mortal stakes is the deed ever really done for future and heaven's sakes. Wow. And that's, that's a really beautifully poetic summation of how do we find the inspiration to do what we do? Wow. I think well, I love that. Uh... We ought to pursue. I love that work is play. And in a way uh, that certainly epitomizes you in that uh, uh, all your work over these years has been in a way play. And that's also the key thing you did with Bucky Fuller. You took his abstract concepts uh, and you turned them into play, into a game that people could be a part of. And, and uh, in a way that was also key with, with Gary, you know, he was a actor and performer and he, and he, and he wanted to make this uh, fun. In fact, he told us to the day he died, he never could have done it if it hadn't been if it hadn't been fun and if he hadn't been an actor and could, you know, see the play and the wry humor and it all. Uh, and of course, Bucky talked personally about, he, he called Gary the new world man in his book, Utopia or Oblivion. Sure. Well, when you, you know, when you speak to about the solutionaries that we are wanting to be, one of the challenges is to make it fun. Um, I think I better take issue with your suggestion that my whole journey and career has been fun. <laughs> and, well, there's been an aspect non, of it. <laughs> Non-stop non play. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but right. what I will say, since you referenced back to the state of our planet one more time, you may recall also that at the time, we were really concerned about the Star Wars initiative and the, the Reagan administration wanting to double the cost or the price and the budget of the Pentagon and, and the defense, so-called Defense Department. And so what we then were doing was, and I know your theme through this whole process of you've interviewed so many wonderful people, Joanna Macy and others and Hazel Henderson and all these great 
women uh, who have been advocating for a peaceful, more peaceful existence on the planet. Back then, um, there were about 13 members in the nuclear club. Um, I don't think Israel had admitted it publicly yet in the mid 80s. And, at the, and so part of that State of Our Planet presentation, we brought out an old World War II um, blood chest that was used by the medics on the battlefield to keep, to keep blood for transfusions cold. And it was, it was pretty big, you know, it was big enough to hold 20,000 tiddlywinks. And for those that are younger, a tiddlywink was a little plastic piece that you could push on the uh, on it and it would flip over and you could play games with them. And we calibrated each of those tiddlywinks to a one megaton nuclear blast. Oh, wow. And, and calibrated to the actual size of the Dymaxion world map that was filling up half of a basketball court. And John Denver, and, and then what we did was we turned all the lights off in the auditorium and we often had about a thousand people. Um, and we then brought this, we dragged this out and we explained that it was holding 20,000 nuclear warheads. Um, and we introduced the nuclear clubs, and this ties into Gary Davis and, and his view of transcending nation state mentality. But one at a time, we introduced each of the nations that at the time had nuclear weapons capability. And we played their national anthem and, they, and the representative would come out with their flag. And then we introduced the second nation state and played their national anthem, but we kept all the national anthems playing until all 13 nations were introduced. And it created such an irritating cacophony of sound that people were beginning to get the message that, oh, gee, maybe it's time to transcend a nation state mentality altogether. <laughs> and then John Denver came out and we had the, all the hundred participants hold hands and stand around the map and he sang, uh, I want to live. Mm -hmm. And then we talked, and then he read his poem about peace. And then we decided we would open the, the blood chest. And we asked all of the uh, nuclear club members to go to the blood chest and take handfuls of tiddlywinks and spread them out all, all over the landmass of the planet. And by the time all 20,000 tiddlywinks were spread out all over the planet, every square inch of landmass was covered two or three tiddlywinks deep, mm. which was an illustration again of a statistic that is so abstract, people can't relate to it. But when you see it visually, and that's what mutually mad, mutually assured destruction represents, and we then asked for a moment of silence. And this is when you were uh, referring to the experience that you had, because I think you were in the audience. And you know how hard it is to get anyone to be quiet <laughs> just for a minute. And we had almost three minutes of deathly silence as we just took it in. And we asked the audience to be able to just ob become observers of what we were creating as a human family and whether or not that was a picture that we wanted to accept or believe was even possible that we could be so insane as to create 
mutual assured destruction. And as a result, uh, typically wherever we went to give these presentations, nine, 10, 11 and 12 year old children would come out of the audience, get down on their hands and knees and start pushing the tiddlywinks back towards the blood chest in the middle of the map. And at that point, I still get goosebumps thinking about it if I don't break out in tears, recalling how powerful that was for the rest of the audience. And you would start hearing a cough or a, a, a moan or a groan, or someone would be audibly wailing with, with frustration and anxiety and, and sadness. And, um, and then when you ask about uh, Ted Turner and how he responded, and how he was presenting it, um, we, would, we didn't want to leave the audience in that level of despair about it and, and sadness. So we, we brought out all the good news, which I know you are the master of good news, Arthur, and that's important as an, as an eternal optimist and hopeful human being. So we would sprinkle um, little glitter, gold dust glitter on the map um, where we would announce really positive things, good things that were being done, positive initiatives and a lot of solution oriented uh, um, projects were mentioned and brought up brought forth as we did sweep all the, the tiddlywinks back in and scooped them up and put them back in the box and locked it up with locks like John Denver's poem uh, about Pandora's box. So those kinds of projects did require a little more than just playful fun <laughs> to come well, up yeah, it's, it's, with the design and the, and the effort involved in, yeah. in, in that forward. Wow, um, but it's such a creative way of handling such, such doom and gloom statistics and yet bring them to life and yet at the same time giving people hope. And that, that is so crucial. That really is, is our journey. Right. Now you mentioned right. that Ted Turner said something at that point about the uh... yeah he said well it's a really great thing you know that we're, we're doing this over here and these school children out in los angeles are doing that and, you know this and that but but then he said he looks out at the audience and said but all of you adults with all your experience and all the things that you've gone through in your lives you got to get busy and do something because we don't have much more time to mess around Wow. And, and so he was very admonishing in his, in his approach to all of all the uh, the folks, and then went back and and uh, he empowered um, his environmental um, advisor uh, at the time uh, to launch Captain Planet yeah. as a cartoon series um, for his CNN Turner Network. Um, and they, they still, I think Captain Planet is still running. In fact, I met the new executive director um, at a conference up in Aspen uh, maybe three years ago or so. And Captain Planet has the various characters, right? Cartoon characters. Right. And one of them is Gaia uh -huh. as a woman representing Mother Earth. And then, of course, Captain Planet is, is here to save the day like the Lone Ranger. <laughs> but they have a whole bunch of characters that are helping to educate children beyond grim fairy tales. Wow. Well, I remember when we were flying uh, uh, to and from the Choices Conference, I, I was on the plane with Ted Turner and I talked with him on the plane and I talked with him about 
uh, both the Gary Davis film and our long-term project of, uh, of, of aiming to make a film that would take kids into that positive future and give them the experience of what does it look like to actually live in a future where we humans have taken back our planet and are, and are creating what Gary called the people-powered planet. And, and he was very favorable to that idea. And we had some follow-up and we sent him some proposals. And actually, I think even now his, his daughter gave us some contribution, uh, but we haven't been able to, to transform that into a big thing. Maybe I'll get back to her and talk to her about this series on, on uh, uh, Netflix series that uh, Martin Sheen proposes we do on Gary's book, My Country is the World. It's a first step, but really the bigger step is actually to create that future vision and let kids dwell in it because it's our visions that give us the power to pull us toward uh, something new. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, I was listening to your last interview with the fellow who wrote the bottom up revolution and Rob uh, Paul, yeah. And yeah, and he was talking a lot about the hero's journey. And it, it's always curious to me how some people seem to have whatever it is, foolishness or courage or hope, <laughs> and all three combined, and uh, uh, agency, uh, efficacy capacity, competence to step into uh, taking risks to, to dis disrupt or disturb the status quo. And I, I remember years ago when the World, um, uh, World Watch Institute was convening some programs at the Aspen Institute. And um, I was sitting outside one of the lecture halls and I, with a friend of mine who's since gone on to start uh, the American Renewable Energy Day conference series uh, to kind of fill the gap where the Windstar series left off. And I said, doesn't it ever, Chip, doesn't it ever uh, occur to you that it seems odd that nearly everything that we know that is good for us, healthy, positive, uplifting, encouraging, has a label alternative? <laughs> How bizarre is that, <laughs> right? So um, it's time to shift those perspectives about what's doable, what's possible from putting them in the category of, oh, they're up, that's alternative, and uh, make, it, make it mainstream. <laughs> well, I love what you said, uh, that uh, foolish, foolishness, uh, courage, and uh, determination certainly uh, uh, and disruptor certainly applies to uh, Gary and and his journey to be uh, to, to 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 become world citizen number one and to create that uh, that vision. Uh, in terms of disruption, uh, I think you're starting to tell us more about when we first met. Uh, some of your other impressions along that idea, that line. Well, you know, in classic literature and our cultural heritage, the fool is actually um, the hero, right? Um, mm. Even like Desiderius Erasmus during the Renaissance wrote uh, um, in praise of folly. <laughs> and it was a, a you know, very powerful indictment of heavy duty seriousness and the authoritarian mentality of top down everything. Right. So, in fact, we've got a we've got a history professor here at the University of uh, Colorado, Patty Limerick, who um, has a great last name, and she dresses up on April Fool's Day 
as the fool and comes into the, the court as the clown and the jester, right? So I think that we need to lighten up in that regard and, and uh, be more playful and have fun with these concepts of, of solution-oriented uh, ways of being in the world that go, that transcend well beyond um, our doldrums of being stuck and caught up in uh, no wind <laughs> in our sails. So, wow. That is so beautiful. What an inspiring place to maybe turn it to a, open up toward questions because I think you really have captured the key that the, really the key is to, to be that wise fool as, as Gary was and don't worry about people think you're absolutely ridiculous and crazy and out of your mind to give up national citizenship and be world citizen number one. Do all the crazy things he did. I mean, even he laughs at himself in our movie when he says, you know, I declare the government of, by, and for the people of the world. And he kind of laughs. I'm, who am I to do that? But, you know, what do they mean when they said, we the people can create government, you know, if it's not you and I. So he had the courage to be that wise fool. And I think uh, uh, I think that 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 foolishness and then that, determination and then make that mainstream. Why should that be the alternative? I think that's all an excellent place to, 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 yeah, to maybe I, turn it over to some questions. But first, you go bet. ahead. You bet. And I love the fact that you brought wise and fool together. I had a, I had an, a teacher one time who said, uh, you know how to spell wisdom, right? And I said, well, I thought so. But he says it's spelled W-H-I-Z-Z-D-U-M-B. <laughs> wisdom yes there we go yeah. all yeah. right well let's throw it over to melanie to handle the question period i see we have a number of people interested in chatting with you welcome all and thank you bud oh my gosh what a move moving moving demonstration that was with pandora's box i mean i couldn't stop crying it was just beautiful and very moving that you went to the positive i love that so, yes, we do have some questions. I'd like to go ahead and go to Barbara. Barbara, if you could please go ahead and ask a question or make a comment. Thank you. Um, I'm Barbara Mueller, and my husband was Robert Mueller. But did you know him from um, John Denver years? Oh, are you kidding? That no, I even, not. <laughs> I, even um, I went to uh, his home in Houston. Uh, when he was working on the University of Peace. That's right. Oh, oh what a joy and pleasure to meet you. Um, he was our, one of our keynote speakers at our very first Choices for the Future Symposium because he was in charge of the 40th anniversary celebration of the United Nations. That 40th and, anniversary celebration ended the Cold War. I want to oh. thank you for your wisdom, for the beauty of your nature. You are something to remember, Robert. He believed- Oh, he, I have I, on my bookshelf, I have, just a second. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, go ahead, Barbara. He, you were saying- oh, My question is, all my life I have believed in peace. I believe that world peace is possible. My grandfather immigrated from Hungary to come here and be at peace because World War I was starting. And he said, no way am I going to be in one of those coffins that the coffin builder was building. He said, I'm gonna work for peace. So he came to the United States. And now I have come up with a decide to be in nature poem. United nature may unite us, bud. That's what I'm thinking. United nature rather than United Nations. Sure. 
Well, I couldn't put my hand on it, but I have a letter signed by him in the cover of his uh, University of Peace little booklet about that. And um, he had such a powerful influence. He also uh, wanted to create, he, he was pointing up at the snow um, on the mountain, on the high mountains above Snowmass Village. And he said, um, we, it's time that we create because we had a cornice above one of the ski runs from the high winds that would come in snowstorms. He said, we need to create, and I can't mimic his accent, but an avalanche of peace. And it was just, oh it's yeah. My I, husband. I mean, we were lucky. I was lucky. He's my second husband and I married him and we had 17 years of traveling the world. And I understand the United Nations like nobody else. I had a, an ongoing tutor from Robert Mueller and what we can do for peace. And we created 7,500 ideas and dreams for a better world. And we publish them and we have Good Morning World and I'm doing Peace Podcast, but and I wanna invite you to be on peacepodcast.org. And Arthur's on, we have 80 of the top people in the, not the top people who are working for peace, dear God in heaven. So bud, what's the one thing you think we can all do to bring peace to our planet today besides think of peace, believe in peace and act for peace and be peace? Well, that's a lot all by itself. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I look at um, what are the root causes of our uh, imbalance and disharmony. And it seems to me that the, the, the root causes are a perception of separation. And that perception of separation combined with an attitude of superiority is a really toxic cocktail for human beings. The, 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 the myth of the triumphant individual, rather than understanding that we are all living as human beings on this precious earth. So first and foremost, um, it's, I put it this way, where uh, when I get a little bit more cynical, which is not a good idea, I would say that we are uninitiated adolescents wandering around in aging bodies, completely confused about our purpose and, and why we're here. So if that's true, then how do we move beyond being uninitiated and move from an adolescent position in our development to a mature contributor to maximize our service on our journey and recognizing the, the essential nature of the well-being of the whole and the well-being of the commons and the health and vitality of the life force energy that will support all of life that goes well beyond humans. So I, I don't know if that was helpful, but because it's it's just it's a way of being that requires initially introspection it requires profound relaxation being present to the moment and then operating with a rest uh, an open radiant heart so quieting the mind opening the heart uh, I'll, I'll harken back. We've been talking a lot about this event that we've, that Arthur and I brought up, brought together us. And Ramdas was one of our presenters. 
and people came to him and said, oh, Ramdas, it's out of control. We're in complete, utter, total chaos. The worst nightmare is upon us. It's, we're just going down the tubes. And, and, and Ramdas knew these people, he respected them, he trusted them. And then in a, a minute later, someone would come to him, Ramdas, we're on the verge of the golden era. It's gonna be so beautiful. It'll be beyond your most wild expectations. Oh, and, and Ramdas was sitting on stage sharing this story saying, it, this confused me for so long because I knew the people that were telling me that we're, we're, we were in the dumps. And I knew the people that were all hopeful and optimistic and, and, and positive. And I couldn't reconcile it and said, ah, it dawned on me. I said, it didn't matter whether we were going down the tubes or we were going to the golden age, because all I could do as a human being was be of service and recognize the suffering immediately in front of me and do everything I could to relieve and alleviate the suffering, period. And that, that leads me to one more quick thing. And then Melanie, I know you've got people wanting to ask a question, but I was wondering what I, where this conversation was going to go with Arthur because I know <laughs> he's, a, he's one of those adaptive generalist comprehensivists too. And so I found a, a Longfellow, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow quote, said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. And I thought, wow, that is really some, sums up uh, an invitation to empathy and compassion and um, acceptance and surrender. That to is, what is naturally wow. arising moment by moment. And when we have confidence and nature can build our confidence when we go out on a solo and we have intimate solitude and wilderness and we are listening to more than our minds uh, that's maybe another little bit of a response to your question. I love the way you go back to nature. As you are talking today, you keep going back to nature. That's how Robert became enthusiastic about going to the United Nations as one of the first interns. He went to nature because his whole family said, you can't leave. We're in Alsace-Lorraine. You need to stay here. But in nature, he saw the call. I have to go. I have to work for yeah. peace. Yeah, and how many humans haven't even been outside yet today? And exactly. we wonder why we're exactly. we wonder why we have uh, illnesses and viruses and and uh, cancers and things that are rampant. We don't even get any vitamin D on our skin anymore. No, that's right. Wow, that was beautiful, Bud. Wow, thank you, Barbara, for that question. Um, we would like to go to Amy. Amy, if you could unmute yourself and have your question or comment. Hi, Bud. Um, actually, I mean, I think my question was the same as uh, uh, several of the other questions, just um, this, this call to action and what we can do, what we can do. I think a lot, as you, it was a good expression, Bud, that, we're all a bunch of adolescents looking around for our purpose. Um, uninitiated adolescents. Uninitiated adolescents. <laughs> no rites and, of passage. You think about what, what are the rites of passage in our culture? Oh, you get to 
graduate from high school or college or you get a driver's license or you can drink right. legally in a bar. Nothing oriented, nothing based on our, our connection to the natural world. Well, and I'm aware that a lot of these people on this call are our older generation people. And, and one, of the, one of the things that possibly we're also dealing with in this culture is uh, less respect for the elders. Um, and we're, we're, in that, we're in that set right now. People are still turning to the young people for the answers. Um, oh, the really young people maybe are good ones to turn to, but you know what I mean. So anyway, it was just an, another one of those questions like action steps or, or um, well, besides that, going on one of your nature journeys, although yeah. that's wonderful, that's a wonderful action yes, step. Yes, Amy, I'll have to share a quick story. Amy went on a, on a, what was called a way of nature sacred passage program and she didn't listen to the instructions to stay in her circle. And she wandered off on the trail. And of course, because she didn't stay in her circle, she encountered a bear on the path. <laughs> and a rattlesnake. And a rattlesnake, yeah, which, uh, you know, was um, a gift, really. In, uh, it's a totemic encounter. But I think what, what you're st uh, stimulating, and uh, again, and it's great to see you, Amy. Thanks for chiming in. Um, I, I was fortunate to meet Margaret Mead. Sometimes I think I'm Forrest Gump's cousin or something because I, show, I meet these amazing people <laughs> and wonder what I'm doing in the picture. And um, Margaret Mead gave us a talk to the National Academy of Sciences Life Sciences and Space Subcommittee on the future colonization of the universe. And this was back in about 1973 or 74. So again, she was in her 80s. And um, she uh, read the riot act to the doctors in, from the National Academy of Sciences about the future colonization of the universe when we hadn't figured out how to get along on planet Earth yet, but, uh, and that we would pick the wrong people to go out in space. But at any rate, um, there was a young woman in a granny dress back then, barefoot, who sort of crashed the reception in the lobby after her, her uh, Margaret Mead's talk. And she wanted to go directly to Margaret Mead and said, gosh, all these problems all over the world, they're so many and they're so heavy and they're too many. And I, what, what do I do? What can I do? And Margaret Mead had her cane then and she slammed her cane down. I had to move my foot for fear of it being skewered to the floor. And she says, young lady, and she points at her. She says, young lady, where do we begin? We begin everywhere at once. And she said, what you need to do is you need to find people who believe the same things you do, who care about the same things that you care about, and then just get busy working on one thing that you're passionate about. That's it. That's all that's needed. And trust that everybody else has got their own ideas of what needs to be done. Let them have it and let them have at it. Go for it. And, wow. and there was another quote that came forward from a folk singer, Kate Wolf, who left too soon. And she said, choose what you care about and live a life that shows it. That's great, great advice. I love that. Exactly. Don't be overwhelmed. Do what you love and everyone will do what they love and take care of it and we'll be fine. So, and I want to hear later about the bear, how, what happened? Anyway, um, <laughs> well, other questions? I've got a lot of bear stories. 
<laughs> yes, and obviously Amy did well. And the, yeah, the she's bear. still with us. She's still with us. Yes, we, she is. We, and the bear, our, hopefully, good too. On our nature, Everybody good? <laughs> on our nature programs, we talk about close totemic encounters of the first kind, close totemic encounters of the second kind, close totemic encounters of the third kind, and close totemic encounters of the fourth kind. And so um, I've got a lot of bear stories. This one, I, I found this bear skull in the woods when I was lost at age seven in the Jewel Basin primitive area of the Bob Marshall wilderness of the Montana Rockies. Oh, wow. It's, yeah, it's I just stayed, found it. That's good. Just found it. Is, it has stayed with me. I found the carcass and uh, a Blackfoot wow. elder um, cleaned it up for me in Big Fork, Montana near Flathead Lake Lodge. And wow. uh, at that time, he not only not only gave me the bear skull, but he did a sacred ceremony and uh, gave me the bear skull back all cleaned up and added two talons from a bald eagle. And, and, and oh, I, didn't wow. it, I, 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 I didn't realize it at the time, but he was, he was uh, adopting me into the bear clan and the eagle clan of his, of his nation. Wow. So, you get goosebumps when you surrender your ego and yourself and you step into trusting and, and accepting uh, what is naturally arising with no, so fear, no fear, no contraction, and, no uh, worries. and just be as present as possible. Maureen, can I, quick share, can I quick tell you what happened with a bear with me? Sure, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's a beautiful story because it's, an exa it's examples of what Bud was talking about. It's because I'd been trained by my, my guides, Bud Wilson and John Milton, um, to be in my body and listen and be reverent and all those things. So I was, I was walking along and I heard an internal voice said, get off the trail. And I was like, like okay so I went off the trail I thought well I need to use that I need to pee in the bushes anyway so I went behind a bush as if anyone was going to see me I went behind a bush and and right when I was there I hear this blump 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 and this bear is coming galloping down the trail that I was just on and and I just started beaming it and went, bless you, bear, bless you, bear, bless you, bear. My heart was pounding, of course. And, and just then this breeze came up from behind me and swept over me and swept my scent right into the bear's face. And he stopped and he went, and he, he got a whiff of me and he just didn't about face and went back off the other way. So I didn't, I didn't have a face to face with him, but the, but the, the message to me was that when we listen and we're reverent and we're respectful, um, nature takes care of us. They, I mean, I had, th there was definitely a, um, a caretaking going on of me in that moment. Um, and I was quiet enough to hear Amy. that. But... <laughs> so yeah. it, it all, is a good oh story. my gosh, Amy, yes. thank you for sharing that. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful Yeah, story. you're welcome. And, and everyone and, has and, a uh, goodness. And we do have a lot more, I have a lot more um, sure. questions. questions and things. I'll try Bud, to make my you, answers you said you could, stay till, you could stay a little late. You can stay a little late, right? You sure. Yeah, so I'm, we'll go. I'm all day. Yeah, right. Okay. Why are we in such a hurry anyway? We're present. We are present. So yes. Okay. Now, Abdul, go right ahead. Thank you, thank you so much, uh, all members. 
and Rotary. First of all, I introduce you. My name is Abdul Hamid. I from Pakistan, Baluchistan district, Panjur. I am a peace worker. I am a world citizen. I thankful to all members and Rotary and the world. You are thank you, sir, very, very good thank for humanity. You are a work is very, very beautiful. A good way, children, human, a life, a better peace. The planet save. You are thank is very good, sir. Sir, I question to you, sir. You helping for peace program, awareness program, air to helping for uh, Pakistani people. You? Uh, do you have a peace program in Pakistan? Oh. Or something in Pakistan? <laughs> oh, okay. So, sorry. I, um, Abdul, I, uh, I don't um, have any reach into Pakistan at all. Um, I'm a small potato. Um, and so um, I don't have a large organization, but I've been working um, for 30 years with the Way of Nature. And, um, and I was at one point when I wasn't being paid a sufficient amount to really uh, be viable, I got a, t a fancy title and instead of uh, an increase in my compensation. And the title was that I was the global director of eco-regional leadership, <laughs> but we never had a program in Pakistan. Um, the closest I got was uh, I Nepal. To, sir, I come to inshallah, American. Uh, you are meet your country, sir. Your love, your country is very beautiful. Your tank is very beautiful tank. Your tank is for humanity, peace program, awareness program. Thank you, sir. Thankful sure. to you, sir. Sure. Well, and thank you for the thank you for the idea of awareness because that's really what we do is an, an awareness training. Um, we help people refine their nine fields of perceptual awareness. And one of my other teachers always used the phrase of our challenge is to become an astute observer of the observers we are. Mm. And that's, um, that's always stuck with me. And, and so having awareness and, a, and being an astute observer in a relaxed state, moving into a pristine presence for the moment and the now allows us to rest with an open radiant heart. And from that place, we're guided into taking action in a way that is positive and proactive rather than reactive. Beautiful, beautiful. And now quickly to Sala. Sala, your question or comment, thank you. I um, wanted to ask how we bring indigenous wisdom, which is on every continent on our planet, into how we vision what society should be going forward. Because this is not just an individual um, effort. It, it involves creating uh, values that people do. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thank you That's for, it. thank you, thank you. So um, Mrs. Mueller, <laughs> Barbara, um, this comes up with um, another gift that I've had of meeting um, Hannah Strong, 
And um, at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in 1992, I was in invited and able to be at the Wisdom Keepers gathering. And we were burning a sacred fire 24 seven above the Rio Centro uh, where all the dip diplomats were. And, and for those of you that don't know, um, Maurice Strong, Hannah Strong's husband, um, was the first convener of the very first Earth Summit in Stockholm in 1972 from the United Nations Conference on Development and Environment. That's unsaid, but they changed it to make it more accessible to people and called it the Earth Summit. The Rio gathering was the 20 year anniversary of the first Earth Summit in Stockholm. And um, that brought forth the, um, Maurice was a brilliant observer and strategist to bring, bring people together and Native Americans were there at the tree um, and spiritual leaders gathering. And so honoring the native and indigenous wisdom was a theme that was running parallel to the Earth Summit. And in fact, it was when the Kayapo came in from the rainforest um, to the Earth Summit in Rio Centro in their full regalia, um, I had a, uh, an instant sort of flashback vision of what it must have been like for the Native American elders of the Western United States to visit Washington DC and bring their grievances to the great white chief in the White House. And it felt like a hundred years later, roughly, we were in the same situation uh, from the 1880s to the 1980s and into early 1992. So, and we've ignored their wisdom for far too long. So back to um, why I'm so delighted that you bring that question up. Hannah Strong um, is carrying on Maurice's legacy and she has a vision for the Earth Restoration Corps to also, um, she has hosted and, and offered um, land grants in the Cristo, uh, Sangre, Sangre de Cristo Mountains of Southern Colorado, where there's a whole range of um, spiritual centers. There's a Carmelite monastery. There's a two or three fully to, empowered Tibetan stupas. There's the uh, Sri Aurobindo Center. There's the Haidekandi Ashram celebrating Lakshmi. There's all these places that are part of her vision to demonstrate to the world that all the competing religions can actually live in peace and harmony side by side. And, and one of her additional desires, she has two parcels of land remaining and she wants one of them to be de devoted and dedicated to an indigenous United Nations to bring all of the members of the indigenous tribal organizations from all over the world to have a place to share their insight, their wisdom. And, and let, me sh let me share one other, well, I, I don't wanna cut people off if they have burning questions, but I think this is relevant and perhaps important. Um, while we were sitting at the sacred fire overlooking Rio Centro in Rio de Janeiro, Manitou, um, brought Manitou is a, 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 a translates to peace in one of the Algonquin languages, I believe. And a young 
a young fellow from that, uh, the Algonquin in, in Canada and the Canadian Rockies was there. And he said, do you mind if I share a prophecy of my family, um, of my heritage and um, my tribal community? And we said, of course, this would be fantastic. And he said, well, we had a prophecy that was given to us eons and eons before beginningless time. And it's been carried down to this day. And it was when a certain thing happened, it would be, it would trigger us to bring forth all of our native elders wisdom and share it in all directions on Turtle Island with all of the other indigenous people. And that was when the eagle speaks from the moon. And they were listening, his elders were listening on shortwave radio in 1969, when the first words came from the lunar lander, which said the eagle has landed. And that was the, that his elders took that as the fulfillment of their prophecy. And their prophecy said, it is now time to gather all of our wisdom, all of our medicine, and share it with all the rest in the world. Now, at the same time that was happening, Marcos Terena, who was an indigenous in the Brazilian rainforest, had a vision with his mother and said, we are going to invite this um, Carioca village and we're gonna send out an invitation to all the elders to come to our village in near Rio de Janeiro and, and gather so we can share our wisdom. And it was spectacularly coincidental and synchronistic. Synchronicity, synchronicity is basically the language of the sacred. And coming together with that awareness of their incredible legacy of their prophecies to realize that it, there's so much magic happening in the great mystery that most of us are, have been conditioned out of. So back to an earlier question, maybe one of the first things we need to do is unlearn <laughs> what we have learned um, and, and be open to new learning. Um, and Marcos Terena then came, John Denver was down, he was the master of ceremonies of the Global Forum of Parliamentary and Spiritual Leaders that was running parallel with the Earth Summits. And we had a meeting at the Palacio Tiradentes, which had all the Colombian ships, you know, with their sails on the, on the portico above the stage. The Dalai Lama was there, all the spiritual leaders of the world were there. And Sapayim, an elder from the Brazilian rainforest came in and his full on uh, feathers and, and had his spear and he looks out over the audience and he says, all of you have headaches. You all have headaches. And my job is to fly around the world in dream time and heal you of your headaches. I still get chills and goosebumps remembering that intervention, right? So wow, it's, it's way past time, way past time that we respectfully bow down to the wisdom of the elders of all of our traditions and especially the indigenous people. That's about Does that, that sound powerful. like you have a strong opinion? I'm sorry. I, no, I, this is so powerful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's what I feel like is happening and it's just incredible. Wow. Okay, everyone, we have, looks like we just have, uh, we want to go to Peter. So good to see you, Peter. Mm -hmm. 
Hi, bud. Great to see you too, uh, and and everybody else, Barbara, Arthur, and and, and others. I recognize a number of the peace group uh, members here as well. Um, so thank you again, Bud, for sort of reliving some of that that history for me that that we had together at, at uh, Windstar and and sure. State of the Planet and Choices. I uh, um, uh, I connected with Ted Turner a little bit, one of those two, and he was one of those. Uh, 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 really unique, cavalier, and and passionate gentleman who uh, put his money where his mouth was, right? And it's great to have been there. Um, I wanted to connect a little bit with Tom Sachs said in one of his uh, uh, notes here on his on his chat side. I don't know if he's still with us, but uh, he said that there's thousands of people and, and thousands of organizations that are doing great things uh individually but not in an organized collaborative way and uh i i am frustrated with that too i i love the the experience of the world game as you know the you were an, uh, an extraordinary producer uh, of that and had a thousand people around and had i'll call it a uh, a one or a two day experience, which was profound for me and, and many others. Um, but it didn't, uh, it, it isn't a long lasting experience. It was one of those, uh, you know, profound events. And then you go back to your daily life. Uh, I didn't know if you knew the, um, the world game has now uh, been gone back to two people who are really intimately connected to that work. Elizabeth Thompson was the BFI director and Greg Watson is a past BFI board member. They now are regenerating the world game in some way or form. Uh, I'm trying to reconnect with them too and have just a, an initial conversation, but Bud, uh, you would bring such a, um, uh, a producer's legacy of the, of the content and the context. I just wanted to loop you in on that. Yeah, um, that's great, please. Send me some information. I would dearly love to um, find out what's currently happening because it's so poignant and so timely to bring back some of those concepts and principles and be able to um, offer them again and update some of the material. Um, and and for me, it's it's really about not doing it as a you know as an event, but as a really just a whole curriculum with with. Sure old folks like you and me and a bunch of young students who have the time and the, and the, and the energy and the passion. Uh, that, that seems to me the, the, the synergy that works so well uh, when we've done it here in San Diego. And um, for me, it's a, an ongoing game, not just something that happens as a, as a one day event. It, it, it obviously is a living question, the world game question. And, and that's, that's what I'd like to see as a legacy for some of this work. So it, it doesn't, uh, um, it doesn't rest as a historical event, but it, it's a living activity. And, you know, keep in mind, I, I too, we, when you talk about the frustration of all of these different groups that aren't being coordinated, and Tom was, was bringing that up um, in the chat, um, de Tocqueville came, right, and was observing the United States from a European perspective and said, you know, all these associations of people are all over the place all the time and um and you and i were thinking well why do we have to reinvent the wheels so often um why don't we just come together with alliances of alliances of alliances and that's happening to a great extent but it but if we recognize that de tocqueville saw that people like margaret mead's admonition 
find the people that you are resonant with, find the energies and the frequencies of, of trust and passion and commitment to doing something of value that's measurable, tangible and observable, moving beyond hope as an empty emotion and connecting hope to action um, and allow people to do whatever they are inspired to do. And if it means we have, you know, 10 varieties of Krispy uh, Kreme donuts, so, so be it. And then, and then maybe that'll inspire somebody to follow up with that. What is Kate's uh, last name who does donut economics? <laughs> uh, the circular economic gal that came out of England. I mean, there are so many things that are happening all the time. It's in, we're, we're living with such abundance of possibilities and opportunities. It's sometimes it's par paralyzing go into a store and you've got 27 different items of the same functionality of a product of some kind. So then we've got to get beyond that to uh, embracing the un ugly underbelly of a consumer oriented economics, <laughs> right? Every person to spend a full day in silence at a landfill once a month until they get past their addiction to buying stuff. <laughs> wow that's a really Build good idea Barbara, can you this is just a prophecy we live in costa rica uh, for 17 years and we have all the property by the university for peace and that in itself that it was created is a miracle but the prophecy on our land and what kept me on this indigenous land with in a cabin that would have been a barn here, not even as good as a barn because we had nothing that we could really count on. It was an old cabin. But anyway, the prophecy was from this land, peace shall go to the entire world. And sure. that is a prophecy that I am trying to have fulfilled. We're on indigenous land. We have the pilafs that the Indians bathed in once a year for their meetings. And these 500 hectares are there to be kept in this original state without anything on them. And then someday we'll bring the people together. And next year is Robert's 100th birthday, March 11th, 2023. And we're putting together a celebration in Costa Rica on this land. One other real quick thing on prophecies. Padmasambhava, who was um, an enlightened Buddha um, in some 800 years ago or so, said that the Buddhist principles would flourish in the land of the red man when the iron bird flies. And wow. so when you think about how the, and we can be so angry about how the Chinese uh, cultural revolution devastated the monasteries of Tibet and invaded and killed off so many of their elders and destroyed their, their places of worship and temples and all. Um, that was in 1949. And the world looked, in the, looked the other way at that genocide. But um, in fact, it was a gift in many ways of, of proliferating the teachings of compassion. The current Dalai Lama is considered the reincarnation of the, of the Bodhisattva of compassion. The Chenrizig and Avalokiteshvara are the, is that in that whole lineage and his, his whole reason for being here is to teach all of us about compassion. And here an 800 year old prophecy suggested that many of his teachings would um, arrive on this plant, on this land of the red man. It's mystery. I, I love that line from uh, uh, Shakespeare in Love, the movie where the guy, the producer goes, 
I don't know. It's a mystery. Fred, <laughs> we could go on forever. You are so amazing. You are so interesting. You are so full of information. This has been a real joy, a real pleasure to have you here on our podcast. And now I'd like to go ahead and send it back to Arthur. And Arthur would like to read something from Merle. Uh, Merle Lefkoff had to leave to go get ready for her talk to COP26. So important she's doing that talk. But she left a message. She said, what you do is most is the most important thing now. We have been separated so long from Mother Earth. When the elites go into nature for a while, they often wake up. I'm in Santa Fe, and Ted Turner is the biggest landowner in New Mexico. Why not ask him to fund the new non-nuclear future movement? It only comes from the grassroots, especially our young people who understand that the idea of global warming is an existential threat, and they need to know that this new generation of nukes that are being built now at Los Alamos, where, where uh, Merle was a guest scientist, uh, that this is you know, an incredible new threat to humanity, this new arms race with Russia and with, with uh, China. And so she's talking about how important it is to get your work out. And, uh, and that also ties right into that grassroots to, uh, I, I'm glad that uh, Peter mentioned uh, uh, Tom's comment. And Tom had said that, uh, uh, you know, organi- that yes, there's all these different movements, but we need organization, collaboration, and synergy from real worldwide organizations collaborating in the synergy. So I think this has been a great synergy. There's synergy coming together. Uh, I love what you said, the the, the chills went down my back when you mentioned the eagle has landed and that's the perfect coming together of this ancient ancient wisdom that's in the very roots of all of us with that technological feat of reaching the moon coming together, the eagle has landed. Well, this has been, uh, a very, very special opportunity. And we're so pleased to have you here, Bud, and so pleased that everyone joined us. How can people follow up with you? It's about all of us um, unlocking the prison of self-importance and, um, and just surrendering to being able to, it's amazing how few people have even, were so disconnected from the natural world that fear of, of going out into nature is, paramount. And so one of the biggest challenges to, is for me is to help reassure people that they will not be eaten by a bear or mauled by a tiger or whatever, right? And, and because um, we've just all these grim fairy tales of how the big bad wolf is going to get us um, has really done a number on our, on our consciousness and our mentality. So I'm delighted to do private programs for small groups of people, wherever and whenever. It's like the old business card that Paladin had, Have Gun, Will Travel, from the old TV show. I've, I have teachings, will share, <laughs> okay? I have experiences, will share. Um, and I've got plenty of bear stories. On my, the first night of my 28-day solo as part of my, my training, a bear ate three of my four food bags <laughs> <laughs> to get my attention. So, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So to be continued, right? Onward, inward with courage and curiosity. And is there a URL? Uh, DeepNatureJourneys.com. Um, it's not immediately up to date. My last program was in the spring um, in the Canyonlands of Utah. That's, um, it's harder and harder to find enough 
land that isn't overrun by tourists or ATVs or, um, you know, so private land is always good to be able to have near a stream, if at all possible. So you have all the elementals available to you for your connections. Um, and, uh, and you don't get people traipsing through your solo site. And we, we spend two or three days of awareness training to give people a lot of practices that they can use um, when they're out on their solo time. So that is, um, and then people have a buddy. So they're Highland uh, have the buddy system for their safety. And um, we go through all that and, and you can either go out for three nights and four days of alone time. I call it um, intimate solitude in wilderness. And then, um, but the optimum time is about a six night, seven day solo because it takes most people in our contracted and distracted culture at least three day, full days to just begin to touch the surface of authentic and genuine relaxation. And without relaxation, you don't make very much progress on this path of awakening and liberation because you've gotta be entirely relaxed to be able to be fully present to allow the heart, the alchemy of those two qualities of relaxation and presence to allow the heart to open. And once you have an open heart, you can get, there's a danger in that, you can get stuck in bliss. And so we have another practice and principle of cutting through to clarity um, and allowing that breeze, like Amy was mentioning, that, that awakens you so much as a leaf brushing against your skin can give you that aha moment of cutting through to, to great greater clarity. And a lot of these um, specific practices were gifted to me by, by John Milton and his, his work. Um, who, he was one of the very first ecologists ever on staff at the White House all the way back to Nixon's era and wrote the National Environmental Policy Act as one of his projects as, an, as a deep ecologist, which was remarkable. So, um, so we're, we're all just, you know, doing our best. Do we bring in the teachings that we've been receiving? We have multiple gifts and stories to share with others and start sharing them, you know, and, um, and, and have fun with, with the adventure and the journey to maximize your service. Wow. Beautiful, beautiful, and, and powerful lessons for all of us, including me. I need to learn that deep relaxation. I need that deep time in the wilderness. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Bud, for being with us and for a remarkable time. Uh, I want to remind everybody that next week we have a very, very special guest and at an unusual time, uh, and that is that it's a... Uh, uh, Stan the Man Turnbull. Stan is incredible. He is. Uh, we've all been talking about the economic system and how it's pushing us in the wrong direction and the and and the crumbling and the problems. He's a real expert on the alternatives, on 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 the new economy, new ways to govern. Gary Davis himself picked him as his coordinator of his commission on economics. Well, you know, economics. I had a, a breakfast meeting with. Um, uh, David Suzuki. Oh, good. And, and David Suzuki said, Bud, you know, the way we practice current economics is basically an advanced form of insanity. 
And he, by that, he said, it is insane to, to even allow the concept of externalities on a balance sheet, that we must account for the effluence of all of our endeavors and all of our activity. And there's no way that any sane person could allow an economic system to get by with writing off as externalities on a balance sheet of the value of your work. So, um, and then I, I had, you know, we, we need to get into systems transformation, the transformation of systems. I didn't even get to the theory you work of Otto Sharma and the Presencing Institute at MIT. So that could be a whole nother topic of- Well, of definitely let's do a topic on systems change because I had a very interesting talk with David Suzuki um, he was at a pretty, uh, we met at, at, in Vancouver, we had a World Ecology Conference and other things. Anyway, uh, he said to me, Arthur, you know, I'm afraid it's really too late. You know, we're, we're past the tipping point and, and we're, you know, we're headed for doom. I mean, they're just, it's, it's really hopeless at this point. And um, at least that point he was feeling that. And I said, uh, well, you know, you're a scientist and you're extrapolating from current trends. And as a scientist doing that extrapolation, you're 100% right. That, that's, that is where it's going. But I said, I'm a movie maker. And I know that in the movie, <laughs> that just when things get roughest and they look the worst and there's one avalanche and more and more and it seems totally hopeless and there's absolutely no way the character can get out, just then a hero comes along that saves the day and I, and I, and I ask and, and, and you know, solves it. And I asked that same question of Leonardo DiCaprio, you see it in the movie, and I say the same thing that, you know, who's the hero who's going to save us? And DiCaprio yeah. says, the hero is all of us. And he goes on to give a beautiful talk about how every one of us in each way, we're the new hero. And we yeah. were talking about the destructiveness of that old single uh, hero's journey, who's the one man who saves the day and saves the girl and all that. And the new hero is all of us rising. And we do have to follow that hero's journey story, but in a whole new way, because that hero's in each of us, and each of us can turn this around. And, and when we discover that hero inside, we'll do it, folks. Arthur, um, that gives me uh, goosebumps as well in terms of um, David Wilcox is a phenomenal singer-songwriter. He has a song that begins with, you say you see no hope. You say you see no reason to believe that the world will ever change. You're saying uh, hope is foolish to believe. And then he goes on with a lyric that says, the, um, love will show the way. And, it, and you're, you're sitting on the edge of your seat and it's about the hero is gonna come too late, but love will show the way. And so if anybody likes music, go to uh, YouTube and say, David Wilcox, show the way, and you'll hear the lyrics of a profound message in that song um, that is totally aligned with what you just said. Love will show the way. That's why I fell in love with Robert. That's why I fell in love with the world. And I think if we could all fall in love with the world, we'd have peace. That's the only way we're gonna have peace. We have to think of us as an earth and fall in love with what we were given, the paradise we were given. Because when you love the earth, you can't harm it. And you can't yeah. harm your fellow people, yeah. right, bud? Yeah, well, yes. that's another, uh, Jean-Michel Cousteau came to our first symposium because we were giving the award, the Winstar Award to his father. And he 
basically said, people protect what they love, period. And we have fallen out of love with our very source of existence. And that's why oh. we need to go back into nature Absolutely. for a very, uh, you know, the, the, the map is the territory, is part of the territory. And the map of a few principles and a few practices while you're out there, you come to a whole new orientation to what even you think nature is. It shifts and it's constantly yeah. changing. Gary wrote a, another book called Dear World, and it's a love letter to the world. His first book, of course, was uh, My Country is the World, but he wrote a total of uh, 11 other books, powerful books you can get a hold of by uh, going to our, our website, uh, but then click on the passport link and you'll get over to the World Service Authority. They list all the books. Uh, they are, uh, it's a love letter to the world, and that is exactly what it is about. It is about loving our planet, our world, our fellow, fellow human beings. Uh, I've always said that people thought that uh, Jesus's prescription to love our enemies, that that was like weakness. No, that is the powerful force. That's so much more powerful. It's the only way that you can vanquish an enemy. Love them and then there's no longer an enemy. So uh, let's do it, folks. Love can lead the way. And thank you for being a part of our podcast. Oh, I see Molly just got on. I think she had a quick comment for Bud. Did you have a comment, Molly? I just Molly? wanted to say hi, Bud. Great to see you. Oh, Molly, hi. Great to yeah. see you as well. I still have such great fond memories of you guys. And, and Arthur, you know, your cousin, I think, was in Santa Fe when I was visiting you one time. And we met at a, at a um, coffee shop. And he shared with me um, the fact that a Lakota elder had just given him his me a medicine bag that had a hummingbird wing in it. I was about to go guide a group of teenagers on their on a rite of passage uh, deep nature journey experience. And the young girl that one of the young girls was 16 and um, only a month prior to her coming on my program, she had made her third attempt at suicide. Oh. And I couldn't, I, I wasn't even sure I was competent enough to have her on the program uh, for who knows. I mean, so she goes out, she comes back in and in our, in our sharing circle, we um, pass the talking stick and she passed, you know, cause I don't force anyone to share any of their experiences if they don't want to. And she was a 16 year old and with her peers and she didn't want to share any of her experiences. So she passed about two or three times when the stick came around. And then finally, she uh, accepted it because one of the kids said, oh, well, something must have happened. And she said, oh yeah, well, you know what? It was a little strange because the first day when I was just sitting, a hummingbird came and hovered right in front of my heart. And then the next day it came back and another hummingbird joined it and hovered right behind my heart. And, and your cousin, I think it was your cousin, Arthur, had told me that in the indigenous traditions, um, hummingbirds come to you and they will hover wherever you have an energetic blockage. Oh. And they spin out the, the energetic blockage and they spin in joy. Oh. And I almost came to tears when, when this young 16-year-old was sharing the fact that three days in a row, two hummingbirds came to her and hovered one in front of her heart and one behind her heart to awaken her self-love and self-appreciation and gratitude and caring. 
and um, it was spectacular. So that's why I wanted, I was going to wear my hummingbird hat to okay. honor, honor that story that came to me and the Lakota elders. And, um, and, and what happens for people on their solo time is truly transformational. Wow, thank you for sharing that. I'll ask, I'll ask uh, my cousin to watch the replay. That's Bob Kanigas who did the Bullyproof program and so on. Yeah. Um, so great, excellent. Yeah. Uh, Molly, anything yeah. else? No, just, just great to let, hear you and see you still doing your thing. I, I love it. Well, come, <laughs> come visit in Colorado. And uh, I know Arthur's got has extended an invitation, but believe me, I, I have such fond memories of, of our 30, 31 years of knowing one another. It's pretty wild. Exactly. If you're yeah. looking for a pristine wilderness to bring people down where there's no ATVs, no interference, no airplanes flying over, bring them down here to Baja. We've got great wildernesses wide open, undisturbed. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for being a part of this. Such fun, we can't let go. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us for another episode of the People Powered Planet podcast. World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.